Revelation 14. Our God loves music. And the more instruments, apparently, the better. A quick look through Exodus or the Psalms will show us this. Revelation really shows us this. When the enemy is conquered, there are songs to celebrate the Lamb's victory. And when the victory is final and decisive, the victor and his people really get to sing. Uh, in Exodus 15, 1-21, there was loud music and dancing because God had delivered them. When David celebrated his day of victory in 2 Samuel 22.1, he literally sang what we know as Psalm 18. David was uh, quite the dancer, apparently. That was part of what they did to celebrate. In Revelation 14 and 15, we begin 14 tonight. The stage will be set for the fourth and final cycle of seven in the book, the seven bowls that contain the seven plagues, which in 15 verse 1 are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. So the woes that we saw in the seal and in the trumpet cycles, if you remember, they were limited in their scope. There's all this talk of a third of the earth, a third of things. But when the bowls that we're about to get to here in just a few weeks, or when they are poured out, the destruction the bowls bring is all-inclusive. It's global, it's even cosmic, it includes Everything and everyone that has been infected by this doomed and pointless, really, rebellion of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet when we begin chapter 16. The previous two cycles, that of the trumpets and the sea, or the seals and the trumpets, if you remember, were introduced by a vision of heaven and its king who rules over history. When we reach the cycle that consummates God's wrath against rebels, brings it to fulfillment brings it to a close. However, John is given two complementary visions of heaven. The first one is tonight in chapter 14. We'll just look at the first five verses. The second vision comes in chapter 15 verses one through four. In this first one, the choir of the redeemed when, uh, whom the lamb has made victorious celebrate their victor. That's all we see tonight. They sing a new song here in verse three. In the second vision in chapter 15, they will mix new and old songs, songs of Moses, songs of the Lamb. Between these two scenes of heaven and its choir, we'll see two short vision cycles, which God willing will go through on the 15th. I don't think we gather on Sunday nights on Mother's Day next Sunday. But the first five verses of chapter 14... Give us a preview of things, of what will happen in heaven, because the Lamb has won final victory. The final victory of Jesus Christ over Satan gives the church, even now, a new song of praise to sing to our champion, since he has saved us forever from God's wrath. Let me pray, and we'll look at these verses together. Father, we thank you for the promise and the purchase and accomplishment of victory through Jesus Christ tonight, that we celebrate, that we remember the celebration of which we take part when we sing songs to the Lamb and about the Lamb. And so, Lord, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit to preach tonight for this task, Father, and for this text and for your people that have come, for all that have gathered in here this evening. Lord, have your way. Help me to speak clearly. Help me to make sense so that I can be understood. I pray, Father, for clarity 
And I pray, Lord, that you would open the ears of everyone who is here this evening. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that this word would go deep in our hearts. Amen. Let me read the first five verses of Revelation 14. Then I looked, John writes, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. So... The Lamb's victory celebration takes place in heaven. That's the first thing we see here. On Mount Zion stood the Lamb, as John sees him in verse 1, confirming, by the way, God's pronouncement all the way back in Psalm 2.6. But as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, victorious, reigning. So it's clear by this and by the other details in this vision that this Mount Zion is not the one on earth, it's the one in Heaven, the choir of 144,000 standing with the Lamb are singing a new song. Notice this, before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders in verse 3. John hears a voice coming from heaven and it sounds initially like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder in verse 2. In fact, it was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. So that's an amazing contrast. I don't think God prefers his music quiet. Now, I know we think that, and in the context of earth, uh, I think it is easier to be reverent or to think reverently when things are quiet. I totally understand and accept that, but the idea that only quietness equals reverence before God doesn't seem to be the case Biblically, when you, when you come across Psalms that want to celebrate and worship the Lord, like Psalm 150, everything is very loud. God doesn't just like symbols, He likes loud crashing symbols, as He says in Psalm 150. We would probably think of loud crashing symbols when we gather as irreverent, right? And yet this describes the music before God. Parenthetically, I'm very excited to be honest with Ben coming, playing guitar, Mixing new and old music, our music then, with a stringed instrument now, gets a little closer to what it's like in heaven. It makes our music a little more biblical. This song is the song of the redeemed choral army of the Lamb, if you will. When these singers reappear in chapter 15, verse 2, they are standing on a sea of glass mingled with fire with harps in their hands. Stringed instruments are always there. And this is the same transparent pavement, by the way. John saw extending from God's throne in heaven all the way back in Revelation 4, verse 6. These 144,000 are the same congregation we saw back in chapter 7, verse 3. Marked with God's seal on their foreheads, which secured their protection from the coming wrath of God and the Lamb, back in chapter 6, verses 16 and 17. The Jehovah's Witnesses get their... um, 
their view of God's people, of his chosen from those two texts. Uh, this one and back in, I think, chapter 7 with the 144,000. That's, that's how many people will be in the end. They read it literally. They take it literally. And so that's the conclusion they come to. And only one thing that's kind of funny to me is I believe several years ago when their global membership exceeded 144,000, they changed the number so that it could accommodate the bigger membership of their church, which, again, you will always have to do if that's the line you take with apocalyptic literature. So now we see that this seal that we saw on them back in chapter 7 It is the name of the Lamb and of God the Father. That's very important coming out of chapter 13. These saints are God's property. They're branded with His protection, imprinted with His identity. They share in His holiness, right? In chapter 3, verse 12, all those who overcome, Jesus promised, were promised a permanent place in God's presence as one of the millions of pillars in His temple, inscribed with His name and His city, as well as the name of Jesus. In fact, in the New Jerusalem in chapter 22, verse 4, all the servants of God will have his name on their foreheads. Notice how much this scene of the Lamb and his sealed choral army contrasts with the scene just before it in chapter 13, verses 16 through 18. What do those devoted to the beast have on them? The mark um, on the right hand or forehead. Their mark is associated with the name of the beast or the number of its name. As the text says, just as the seal on God's people are uh, is the name of God and of the Lamb. Both of those things, the mark and the seal, symbolize the ownership and control of those who have been branded. The difference is that the mark of the beast is not a seal. Those are two different words. We're meant to see that. A mark is not a seal, and a seal is... Not a mark. The mark of the beast, that doesn't deserve what the word seal describes of those who receive that. Seals in biblical literature describe both ownership and security as well as protection under the authority of the one whose name is on the seal. The mark of the beast is just that. It's just a mark. It doesn't promise any shelter from the coming wrath of God. Again, The difference between the mark and the seal is like the difference between um, a heavy T-shirt and a bulletproof vest. One can actually is is actually bulletproof. It's in the name. The other one is not and won't provide any protection against bullets. So in these back-to-back visions, 13, 11 through 18 of the mark of the beast and those who follow him, and 14, 1 through 5, and the sealed coral army of the Lamb, John is seeing all humanity divided into two groups. All humanity bears two different brands, so to speak. That's how God knows them. The name of the Lamb and His Father who are safe and secure in His ownership, or those claimed by the world system that opposes the Lamb and His Father, a system, by the way, that the Lamb will come and shatter like pottery when he appears, this company around the lamb here is also described in verses four to five with images that speak of their purity, right? Spiritual purity. They're portrayed as virgin soldiers who abstain from sexual relations so that they may serve their master without any distraction. They are a holy offering of first fruits for God and the lamb. They speak no lies. They're blameless. These are unblemished sacrifices to God. Again, they're described in the text as celibate. 
as virgins. So keep that in mind when you want to identify those 144,000 people. If, if we keep in mind, if we're consistent in the symbolic form of visions, that will keep us from inferring that, okay, so only unmarried celibate males can be followers of the Lamb. Right? That's not what the text is trying to tell us. Even though that's how the vision describes on the page the people of the Lamb here. There is a reference here, a deliberate reference to the Mosaic Law that had instructed the soldiers in Israel to maintain rigorous ceremonial purity when going to war against God's pagan enemies back in Deuteronomy 23, verses 9 through 11. The ceremonial cleanliness was a symbol of the spiritual cleanliness. They were set apart for, devoted to God. Here... The appearance of the whole church at this point, men and women, single and married, as an army of celibate, blameless soldiers, is meant to symbolize the difference between them and those who take the mark of the beast, who are sold out 100% to the devil and to the beasts. They symbolize the single-minded loyalty and devotion believers have to Christ. That's why they're pictured in this way that we've seen biblically before speaks of soldiers ready for war committed to God, celibate, pure, physically, so that they're not distracted from their task. And think for a moment, what image, this is the bride of Christ here, this is the church here, what image is given of Babylon, the mortal enemy of the Lamb throughout Revelation? What is she called? A shameless prostitute, right? These are the images given In the book of Revelation. So the church appears with the Lamb here as a pure, victorious army in a holy war, which is the antithesis of the beast, defiled, and deceived soldiers that we saw in 13, 7, and 8, 13, 14 through 17. Notice that the Lamb's army has been redeemed from all humanity as first fruits for God and the Lamb in verses 3 and 4. That word redeemed reminds us of the earlier song of worship to the Lamb in chapter 5, verses 9 and 10, whose blood had purchased people, redeemed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation to become what? A royal priesthood, right? Offering sacrifices that are pure and holy to God. That's the image we see now here in chapter 14. And so uh, here John sees, however, only the first fruits of a much larger harvest assembled in heaven. It, this is the foretaste of the promise of a full harvest that is yet to come. So he's seeing that in the middle of his vision cycles here. During the Feast of Weeks, if you remember from the Old Testament Scriptures at all, during the Feast of Weeks, seven weeks after the Passover, Israel was commanded to offer the first fruits of their grain as thanksgiving to the Lord for the wheat harvest that was about to be gathered. First fruits meant we have a good harvest, the full harvest is to come, we offer what is first to you. In Scripture, first fruits is a symbol. It's a a preliminary installment that foreshadows the fullness of a blessing or a harvest that is yet to come. Here, John sees the believers from 12.11, Revelation 12.11, that have held their faith to the death, sees them as first fruits, proof of the coming global harvest that guarantees the ingathering of all God's people from all nations. That's what John is seeing here. John is being reminded, and he's reminding the church, That while the beast is raging and all this is happening, again, here's the scene in heaven. The Lamb is victorious. And very soon, in Revelation even, John will see the final sweep of God's sickle 
that brings every, one commentator said, Jesus trusting seed of the woman safely into God's storehouse in verses 14 through 16. So the symbolic purity of the Lamb's army is interpreted even further in verse 5 when they are specifically referred to as guileless and blameless. These are spotless sacrifices that have been offered up in death to God. They only speak the truth. Therefore, they bear the image of the Lord's servant, the one led like a lamb to slaughter, although no deceit was found in his mouth. In Isaiah 53, 9, that word blameless, again, has moral, yes, and ceremonial implications. This is the word that was used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to describe the absence of a defect, to describe the kind of animal you had to find for sacrificial offerings. And if you remember, we saw martyrs underneath the altar back in 6-9. Underneath the altar is where the blood of sacrificial animals would have flowed. The use of that imagery here affirms the spiritual purity of the church that has been cleansed by the perfect sacrifice, cleansed by the blood of of the Lamb, back in chapter 7, verse 14. So those who are spiritually compromised and deluded and infected are excluded from the presence of God and the bride in His holy city. We'll see this again in 21, verse 8, and 22, verse 15. The voice that John hears in heaven is like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder in verse 2. This is the very Almost the exact same language the prophet Ezekiel used in his prophecy to describe the voice of God the Almighty himself. However, here this voice also resembles the sound of harpists strumming their harps, which is a very usually soft, beautiful, clear sound. So the voice of God is described here with overpowering strength and soothing sweetness. And this voice is also the united voice of the Lamb's choral army who play harps to the sound of their new song. It's accompanied by instruments. Later, in verse 2 of chapter 15, they will appear again, as we said, holding the harps of God. A new song accompanied by the harp. That's the standard tribute, new songs that have been offered up to God in the past when He came to the rescue of His people. Psalm 144, 9 and 10. Psalm 96, 1. Psalm 98, 1. Uh, When I give those references, the goal is not that you have to go back and look at each one, although you certainly can. The point is here that this is what happened when God delivered His people. There was a new song, and they played harps to God and stringed instruments. And the lyrics of this song, however, are only known to them Right now, those who are in Christ now in heaven. God doesn't withhold this song to keep His glory veiled, but to symbolize the amazing truth. Sinful people who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb are now qualified through salvation to praise God in such a way that even the highest angels cannot copy. They desire to look into it in First Peter 1. 12. So while the, here's where we are in Revelation. All right, let's get our bearings here. While the two beasts are wreaking havoc on the church and creation throughout history between his ascension and his return, those who die in the Lord, first fruits of the harvest, lose their lives for his sake even, 
They join a choral army singing God's praises because the Lamb has won and secured their victory. John is constantly given these little respites that are reminders that the Lamb is victorious. And this day is coming for you and I, beloved, for the whole church from every nation, the day that you and I will stand in the presence of God and the Lamb, our Savior, to sing praises to Him, free from sin, free from death and pain and sorrow and conflict, forever and ever and ever. The beautiful thing that we're seeing in Revelation 14 is that this will be ours regardless of when or how we expire on the earth. I was talking to uh, Landon Kelly this morning with his parents in my office before our gathering this morning. Landon wants to be baptized, and so we were talking, and he had questions for me, which was fantastic. I love, I really do love the questions of kids, especially when it comes to Scripture. There, there is no playing around with kids. If it doesn't make sense, if they don't like it, they ask. And so he wanted to know all about um, you know, what was, what was heaven like and would we be able to see each other there and things like that. And so we, we talked at length really about all this and he had lots of questions. And we go to texts like this. We remember that because Christ has purchased salvation, that by doing that, by living and dying and rising from the dead and ascending to the Father, to the Ancient of Days, to be seated forever at His right hand and granted all authority in heaven and on earth, to die in the Lord before He returns, again, while the beasts are just wreaking havoc, is to go into the presence of the Lord, our souls into His presence, to be with Him forever. To die later, right, is to go into His presence, whether we die naturally, whether we die um, for the sake of his name. The point is that the lamb is victorious even while everything is raging against him. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians 1. We find out here what that seal looks like, right? These images are all of scripture comes to bear on revelation. That, that That's part of how we come to understand it. When we see terms and Concepts and ideas that we've seen before, there's a reason for that. Everything is coming to a head in Revelation. So either we join the first fruits of the final full harvest, or we go at the end. But we will be there nonetheless, and we didn't have to lift a finger to get a seat there. Everything described in Revelation that pertains to our final victory and final joy and final rest, all of it has been won, secured, and granted to us once and for all in Jesus Christ. The final victory of Jesus Christ over Satan gives the church a new song of praise to sing to our champion. We'll know the lyrics when we get there since he has saved us forever from God's wrath. So, Go home rejoicing tonight. Your names are written down in heaven. You have a spot in the choir that praises Him forever. The victory is won, beloved. John sees a glimpse of what is coming. The preview of the eternal celebration. There's a preview for it because it's sure and it's certain. The Lord of history decides, determines, and directs all things so that in Christ all this will take place. 
There's a reason in the church, just as there is in heaven, for music, for glad singing, for rejoicing. There is a reason to count it all joy, even when we encounter various trials and tribulations of every kind. We don't rejoice, we don't hope, we don't long for God with the sorrow of not knowing or the anxiety of not knowing whether or not His plan is going to work and shake out. Revelation has been written to show us not only what God already knows, but what God has already done for His people. This is Christ for you. This is what He gives us. Take heart, beloved.